I want you to open your Bibles again this morning to Matthew chapter 15. We were there last week. I want to go back to Matthew chapter 15. Last week we talked about the reason why the word has no effect that people can assemble before it and hear it and listen to it and their life never seems to be affected by it. Some of the reasons were the being a false teaching or being unteachable or being dull of hearing or backslidden or just lost because a natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit. But I can tell you that standing where I'm standing for the years I've stood here in other places, that it is very possible to be a regular in attendance and to be one of the helpful souls in the church and do a lot of things, and yet your life never changes. And it's easy to backslide and turn away and drift around, but stay in a church setting. And that's not good, and I don't want that to happen to anybody here. So I want to talk this morning about verse 9, but I want to begin at verse 6. He ended verse 6 by saying, And you have made the word of God of no effect by your tradition. And we know this. If we only had one verse to go by, we know this, that when God gave us his word, its design is to change, that God's word is designed to affect something. He sent his word and healed them. If he sends a word of healing, the design of that word, the power that's in that word as God backs it is to heal. And we got thousands of promises, and they are all are designed to effect a change. Now, if anybody takes away from what that says, for whatever reason, if you water that down, if you modify that word, if you take away what it says and explain it another way, then it no longer does that. The word has no effect. That's what he's talking about. The word that was designed, the word that was sent to do something, as he said in Isaiah 55, he said, my word will prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. But if the word that people are receiving is not exactly like God said it, then it won't do that. And people will be left disappointed because, well, I heard the word and I memorized that and it didn't work for me. Well, there's reasons it didn't. This may be one of them. But in verse 8, he said, this people draweth nigh unto me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So what they were teaching that made the word ineffective for the people was not what God said, but the way man translated or interpreted it. Now, they did do honor. I mean, they had the right words. They sang the right songs. I love you, Lord, and I lift my hands. He's all I need. We sang all the right songs, and we feel very good about it because they're good songs. We pay attention because we should, and we hear what's being said. But he said to these people, to those whose God's words was not having any effect on them, he said, in vain do you worship me. Now, I've mentioned vain throughout the years, and I want to talk about the word vanity because there's different ways that we define vanity. But here, in a spiritual sense, he said, your worship for me is worthless, or your worship is useless. 
or your worship has no effect. And in a sense, I'll explain in just a moment, your worship is fruitless. It accomplishes nothing. If there's one thing that God's word must do is bear fruit. If it does not, then something is really wrong, something is really out of whack, and the word useless, worthless, or of no value can be used to define it. Now, again, in verse 9, he said, but in vain do they worship me, because he said, you've made this word of no effect. Now, it's interesting, in the Greek language, the word for no effect is the Greek word A-K-R-U-O-O, akaruo. Aren't you glad? Now, when you take the A off of that word, it's cruel. It means to accomplish. Now, you put an A on the front of it, and it means to make void or to be annulled. It does not work. God intended for his word to do something in your life. That doesn't do much in anybody's life, but it's designed to. You can resist it or you can receive it, but it's designed to do something. If you're listening to it and listening to it a lot and it's not doing anything in your life, then vanity or something vain is prevailing because it's not producing fruit. It's useless. A seed, a hybrid seed that you plant and you get some kind of a hybrid vigor crop or something, I understand that a lot of times a seed is not good. Or maybe it's with animals. You get hybrid animals and, and they can't reproduce. There's something wrong. Something is not as it's supposed to be. Fruit is the key. Well, let me ask you a question. The word that God gives us, this Bible, is this word supposed to produce fruit? Or should we say it ought to or it should, but it doesn't necessarily have to? Now, if we all agree that God sent his word to do something, and if it's not doing it, then whoever it is not doing it in are fruitless. Okay? Now, just look at it for a minute. Matthew 13. Would you follow me just briefly? I want to make a point here so we can go on. Matthew 13 and verse 23, just a couple of pages back. The parable of the sower and the seed. But he that receives seed unto the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. Luke's account says it like this, but that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit. With patience. Now, if I understand this right, Jesus is saying he has something to say to us, and as he says it, it's supposed to do something. It's supposed to have an effect in us. It's not a word that entertains us to make us feel good so we can go home really not knowing what was said but just feeling so good about it, but the word is supposed to do something that we can't just let it go over our heads and then remain as we were because if that's true, then we're living a vain life. While we're in a religious setting, we're pretty vain people because the Word isn't doing anything. There's no evidence of the Word's fruit in our life. And if there's no evidence of fruit, then we're vain. 
I don't mean vain with too much makeup and that type of thing. We'll get to that in a minute too, but we're just vain. We are of no value. We can call ourselves ambassadors of Christ, but there's nothing here that evidences it. We're just religious church members. We go to church. We're Methodist, Baptist, and so forth. Remember the first Psalm about bearing fruit? He said, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly and so forth. He said in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he doth meditate day and night. He shall be. This is the way it works. He delights in the law of the Lord. God gives him that delight. You cannot by yourself delight in it. God causes it to be a delight. You respond to the cause. You draw nigh unto God. And the word becomes a revelation. You begin to see it. And when you begin to see it, you begin to rejoice in it. Praise God. And you start thinking about it. And his word is on your lips. And his word is in your heart and in your mind. And you talk about it as you go along the way. And you think about it. You meditate on it. For he says, in his law, he doth meditate day and night. It's a treasure. It's the love of your life. It's the deepest, most purposeful thing in your life. You give up nothing for it. Because you have a revelation that God has shown you something. It says, and he shall be, in verse 3, the psalmist said, he shall be like a tree planted by the water that bears his fruit in his season. He's fruit bearer. If the Bible speaks of us that we should be kind and gentle and meek and loving and compassionate people, if that word finds a lodging place in our heart, I don't care what kind of person you used to be, you will become a kind and caring and compassionate person because that's the nature of God and his word. And if we're not responding that way, if we're not becoming like that, there's something wrong with us. Because the whole focus of where we're headed as Christians is a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That as he is, so are we in this present world. The word brings us there. If it's not, then either we're mistranslating it, misinterpreting, or false preaching, or you're not listening. I mean, it's one of those two. Either the devil is defeating us, the word is not true, or something of that sort. Turn to John 15. John chapter 15 and verse 2. The chapter about bearing fruit. I don't want to spend the morning talking about fruit bearing, but I can say this to you in passing as we go through this section of John here, that if we don't bear fruit, we don't make it. That fruit bearing is a central theme in the Bible. Bearing fruit, becoming like, reproducing that seed. Isn't that what a seed does? If you receive a seed, this parable of the sower and the seed in Luke's account in chapter 8, he says the word of God is the good seed that was sown. And the purpose or the design of a seed, any seed, is to reproduce itself. You plant corn because you want corn. You plant one little kernel of corn, you get a whole bunch of corn. Because that's what corn's designed to do. It's designed to reproduce itself. 
if the word of God is a seed and Christ is the word and he comes to make his abode in your heart and daily and little by little and glory to glory to glory and day after day, if he is ministering to you and doing a work in you, your life is going to change or you're not saved. I've been thinking, I told Bonnie the other day, I said, I'm going to preach on how to know you're saved. It'd be so narrow because we're so used to letting anything be as long as you got a little church setting about it. We're all right. Well, you know what? We're not all right because we go to church. There is something that has to happen. Something by God is designed to take place in us. It is evidenced by the way we live and the way we talk and the change that obviously comes. The people should take note that you have been with the Lord, that God is doing a work in your life. Don't we sing a song, I'm not the same old person that I used to be? Why? It's because God is doing a work in you. Your response to that word is causing it to reproduce itself. That's the way it works. In John 15 and verse 2, Every branch, and that's what we are, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. This is the relationship. A branch, that's you, cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. That's Jesus. No more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into fire and they are burned. Does your Bible say something like that? Those are very serious verses because it has to do with eternity. It has to do with the end of our life and the life that's ahead of us. And it all comes down to one thing. It's a relationship that reproduces the one who brought you to him. It's a relationship out of which Christ is birthed. That is, is reproduced. For me to live is Christ. Remember that? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Of glory, look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Herein is my Father glorified that you be a good church member, that you be busy and active in the church. That's not what he said. You might be and you probably will be, possibly. But he said, Herein, in this way, is my Father glorified that you, bear much fruit. And then these words at the end of it, in this way, you will be my disciples. Whoa. So shall you be my disciples. Then we could say this, in order for you to qualify as being a disciple, your life must glorify God by the way you live, the way you talk, and the way you act, that it's godlike. Would we be right? That our life is an expression of what God is doing in us. Or your life is an expression of nothing. 
Now, I mean this from my heart this morning because what the Lord is saying is this. In this late hour, and the Lord's about to come, and the world's about to come to an end as we know it, and the changes that are taking place in this world morally and politically and every other, you've got to know something's going on. And God is refining and getting his people ready. And he says, if you want to be my disciple, not only do you read Luke 14 and all of those things, but my disciples are fruit bearers. My disciples are little reproductions of me. You must decrease. He must increase. People must see Christ in us, the way we live, the way we talk, gentleness, meekness, kindness. Enough of this blowing on the horn and slamming the fist and whining about this and complaining about that and murmuring about that and gossiping about that. That's not Christ, is it? That's fruit that's being born by something else, but that's not good fruit, and it doesn't glorify God. Something has to change. Now, the world's definition. Let me give you a definition of vanity because I've got four or five points I want to make this morning. Vanity can be defined as useless, without value, lack of usefulness, emptiness as to results, hollow, or just plain vain. Now, that's the way the word is used in Scripture. That's what it means. It just means that you're full of a lot of things, but none of it's acceptable to God. And this is why he says, Trust me with this. This is why God says and will say, I never knew you. Busyness is not salvation. Going about trying to do a lot of things does not mean you're saved. The most important thing is fruit. Christ-likeness being birthed in you and your willingness to yield to that so that what people see is not so much you, but they see the change that he's making in you. Vanity in the world's view would be based on appearance, accomplishments, possessions, or abilities. Now, I don't want to stay too long on this subject because there's a whole lot in the world about what is vain. You can be vain in your appearance, and you know that. But just because you're very careful about how you dress doesn't mean you're vain. So bear with me. But there are people who are vain and they're gaudy. And they dress sometimes outlandishly. Rock stars do this because they're starved for attention. I don't know what happened to them as children, but they're starved for attention. And so they dress crazy. And they act crazy. And they talk crazy because they're vain people. They're vain. There's nothing there that you would want to be like. You wouldn't want your children to be like them because they're vain. They're vain people. You look at movie stars, and, and they get in front of the, these uh, big galas for the awards night, and they all dress to the hilt, and there's always that part in the place of the meeting where they walk by where the cameras are, and they give it all. Now, this is vain. The look, the actions, many times the clothes, that's vain. It has no redeeming value, and nothing is of God. Therefore, it's all of man, it's all of flesh, or as we know it, all of self. It's attention-getting. We have magazines that promote this. 
I'm sure there's all kinds of glamour magazines. that I've seen them in the grocery stores. I know you don't have them in your house, but I see them in the grocery stores. There's this painted up woman. There's always a sex article in there too, but there's always all these other articles on how to look younger, how to look sim, a sexy look, a sexy smile, or some way you could be, you know, some way to be vain. I mean, uh, some way to improve yourself. Or there's Vanity Fair. Is there still a magazine named Vanity Fair? Or a vanity mirror in your car? Or men like vanity plates? There's all kinds of ways that the word vanity is used. It's often directed towards one word, attention. Let me see. Show me. And I think people dress certain ways. I think basketball players, baseball, football players, uh, they all act certain ways because of vanity. They're just vainness. And the talk and the language and the way people act, it's all about being vain, and nothing of it is good. Religion does the same thing. They build it bigger. They advertise. You see these advertisements on the religious page and all the come-ons and the big building and the big this and the big that, and the preacher's got to be a doctor, doctor somebody, because you couldn't have a simpleton in there. This is all for the expression of who we are. That's vain. I think the Laodicean church was vain. They put all the emphasis on what is meaningful in their life on the outward, how we look and what it looks like and and how the program comes. I think it's vanity because that's the whole purpose of the whole thing is to impress somebody to get attention. It's vain. That's the worldly look at vanity, and there's more of it. You could talk about jewelry. I don't think people wear jewelry because they're vain, but I think there are people who wear jewelry because they are vain. And they got it clanging and banging and, and it's swinging all. I've seen earrings to their shoulders. Some of them look like you could put a bird in them. They're so big. <laughs> Why are they like that? So you will notice it. Every finger has a ring and every arm has a bracelet. Why? So you will notice it. It would be a shame if they paid that much money to look like that and you run around with them and you never said, oh, that's a beautiful ring. So they go, well, yes. Now, see, I'm overdoing that. I don't think people that have a lot of nice jewelry, I don't think they're vain, but I think there are people who wear that stuff because they're vain. I mean, bunches of it and all of that kind of stuff. Just like the people who overdress and I remember a minister that I once knew was so particular about how he looked at all times that we went to play golf once, and he had on, I remember, pants right out of the dry cleaners, pressed on a dirty old golf course, and he had pressed pants, and I mean, a very refined look, and I thought, I looked at me, and I thought, man, I look like a dog compared to him. But I noticed not just that moment to judge somebody's vein, but other times in the life, you know, the what we call it, mirror time? You know, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the best-looking one of all? And, you know, you can see people, you know, this guy would do that too. He'd get around a mirror and he would, because he's vain. There's nothing wrong with fixing a hair that's out of spot or combing your hair or making a gig line on your shirt, matching. A, I mean, there's nothing wrong with you being nice. But you can take it to a level in which you are obsessed with it and you're doing it so other people will Notice it. 
We're always talking about how much your clothes cost or how much this or that costs. You can tell somebody in private that, but when you want everybody to know that you're an expensive body, you're a vain person. I always want to talk about all your accomplishments and your trophies if you're in sports and you get all these trophies and I've been in the paper and, man, I like the microphone. You're vain. It is hard for a person like that to come to the Lord and give that up. That's why you don't see a lot of notable people in meetings like this. Because if you live God's way... One of the things you have to do is Luke 14, 33. If any man will not forsake all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Cannot. And you realize that these things that you're living for and you want to be so noticed, you've made this your life. And you can't serve yourself and God. You've got to die to the things that are making you different than the way God wants you. That's why the crucified life is so important, and, and the cross daily, as Jesus said. you got to get away from the place where I am the focal point of history. I am what the world is about. You come to the place where you're willing to be absolutely a nobody. He must increase, and I decrease. I still look nice. I bathe my body every day, and I still brush my teeth and comb my hair. I even shave, but I'm a step ahead of the world. That's not the focus of my life because people who live for the world and for self are vain people. And the fruit that vanity bears will prevent the very things that God wants. These people cannot sit in a place very long that demands a cross in their life. They can't do it because of vanity. That's how serious it is. Now, spiritually speaking, the Hebrew word for vanity often refers to false gods. Any kind of idol is a vain thing because it's useless. People follow it. They say it talks back to them. They have prophets that prophesy on the behalf of some stick or some rock, and people follow that back in the days of the Bible, and they probably still do today. Don't they read horoscopes today? Don't they follow astrology charts? Well, who do you think gave horoscopes and astrology charts? Some person wrote those things down. Papers are full of them. They're all, all of them. There are none that aren't, are inspired of the devil. There's a spirit behind them and a spirit goes with them. And when you get involved in them, you get the spirit. It comes with the package. But people don't know that. People are looking for answers to things in their life apart from God. And anytime you seek information about things like that, you are seeking it on behalf of a spirit that is not the spirit of God, and you're going to be misled, and it's going to trash your life because that's the way this world works. People don't know that because of a lack of teaching. But vanity is a terrible thing because it just disrupts and it destroys. Let me show you this morning from a few verses how a vain life comes forth. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2. How a vain life comes forth. Remember... If you're a vain person, it means that God cannot use you. Amen? Let me remind you of a verse in 2 Timothy. Paul writes, in a great house, there are not only honorable things, but there are also dishonorable things. 
There's gold and silver, and then there's wood, hay, and stubble. Remember what he said, if a man will purge himself from all the stuff that God says is not of him, things you've been doing and holding on to, but it's not of God, the fruit that that stuff bears is against God. You've got to get rid of it. He said, if a man will purge himself from these things, he shall be a vessel unto honor, useful, or meet, the Bible calls He will be useful and prepared for every good work. That's the kind of person God can use. But it takes a purging. Purging takes recognition. Recognition takes revelation. Revelation needs somebody that will preach the word. Or you read it from the Bible on your own. But this is the way it's got to be. God shows us the way. We're willing to walk the way. And then we do that. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 5, Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain? That's a question that God is asking here. What has happened? How have they become vain? How could this be? These people had priests. Well, I can hear the argument right now. The same spirit then, still here in America, still in the world, doing the same thing, and people still fight it. What do you mean, vain? Don't we have a temple? Don't we have priests? I mean, aren't these people that read the word? Don't we have sacrifices? Don't we bring our gifts and offerings to the Lord? And you're calling us vain? What are you talking about? Well, verse 8. The priest said not, where is the Lord? Because see, things weren't going well. And the priests weren't saying, Lord, what are we doing wrong? You think that's a good thing to say when nothing's going right in your life? Hello? That's the first thing I look at. What am I doing wrong? What's wrong? Whoa, 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 time out, Hamilton. Stop whatever you're doing and deal with your life right here. Well, what have you been doing? What kind of decisions have you made? What have you been reading? What have you been watching? Who have you been talking to? Are you messing up somewhere? I do. But he said this. The priest did not say, where's the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. They that handled the law didn't know me. The pastors also transgressed against me. They changed what I said. They didn't want his word to mean what it said, so they made it mean something else so the people out there wouldn't have to go through that time of conviction and dealing with it. They wanted them happy, just like right now in America, right now as I speak. Make them comfortable. Make everybody happy. Make everybody feel good. And watch how they live during the week in their vein. They're living all about me and self. It's vanity. I'm going to read verse 5 again. What iniquity have your fathers found in me? What was it about me that they just did not like that they turned away from me? How is this? They have withdrawn or receded from me. They're gone far from me. They don't need me anymore. They walk after vanity, probably idols and the influence of idols. They're walking after useless things. They're walking after worthless things. 
They're very religious people, but at the end of their worthless religious lives, they get nothing. That's vanity. Wouldn't it be vanity? What if we assembled in this place for 15 more years in this building, had a better parking lot? What if after 15 years, the Lord came, no more than five or six of us made it? Did we experience vanity? For some reason, I can't imagine, but yes, we could. We could. Do you suppose maybe that's why Paul was warning his people that he met? That there's a price to pay if you want to live this way? If you want to be a Christian, you've got to forsake it all, all of it. Whatever he wants you to get rid of, you've got to get rid of because that will keep you from bearing fruit in that area. You've got to get rid of it. The only way you can be right with God is to bear fruit, and that way you glorify him. That's the price you've got to pay. You've got to make your mind up before you come to the Lord. What if you told a sinner that came forward, said, I want to be saved, and you start talking to him and say, are you really sure you want to give up? And what if he said, I don't know about that. Did he really want to be saved? I asked a young fellow once, a little fellow. He said that he wanted to get saved. I said, why? Why? Aren't you a preacher? Want to go to heaven and be good. I said, it's the wrong reason. I mean, it's a little fellow. I'm talking about maybe seven, eight years old. I said, it's the wrong reason. I want, to, I want to do good things. Wrong reason. It's not why you get saved. You get saved because you're a sinner. Because you see your sin and you hate your sin. And until you hate it, you'll never turn away from it. And if you don't turn away from it, it seethes in your life. And it mingles with religion. And it moderates your life until you begin to pick and choose what you like and what you don't like. And then you stay with that long enough. You think you're saved and you're not saved. Well, I hope you think about that anyway. I'm not asking you to agree with anything I say this morning. But I do want you to listen. Because I think God draws a narrow line. I think when he said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And they worked miracles. They cast out devils. They did a lot of right things, but he never knew them. I doubt they abode in him. I don't think their life was defined by a daily relationship and a seeking and talking to God. I think they had a form of religion. Maybe they denied the power of it. And when religion does that, it tells even you to avoid it. All your buddies from these other churches that don't believe in any of this stuff, why are you running with them if you are? Why? A little leaven will leaven the whole lump. Are we afraid to be different? Didn't the Bible say come out from among them and be separate? Well, he did, and it does. But the key is in verse 8. He said, the people who handle the law don't know me. They're the product of what they've been taught. Their seminaries or their parents has taught them the things that they're teaching. They don't know if they're true or not. They don't know. We know what the Bible says about it. They just know that this is what we believe. They don't know the word. They don't know the law. They don't know the word. And the pastors, they've transgressed against me also. Go to 2 Kings. That's the second thing. People are vain because they have departed or receded or withdrawn from the Lord in Jeremiah 2. Now in 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 
14, notwithstanding, they would not hear, but hardened of their necks like to the neck of their fathers that did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes. Now, that's the open door for vanity right there. Anything now, when you reject the word in his way, everything that follows that as a religious way is a vain way. Are you with me? It is vain because God will not cause to bear fruit anything outside of his word. If it does not bear fruit, there's no relationship between that person and God. There's got to be the birthing of his word, the reproduction of his word. That way we glorify God, that way we're disciples. Verse 15, but they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies which he testified against them, and they followed vanity and became vain, just like the other verse. They followed vanity and became vain and went after the world's way, the world's system, the heathen round about them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not be like them or do what they do. They rejected the Lord's way. They do today. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is so narrow, requires so much submission to God and commitment to him, most Christians resign themselves to the fact that it's too hard, they can't do it. I mean, the last verse of chapter 5 in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount is, Be ye therefore perfect, even as God Almighty in heaven is perfect. They throw their hands up and say, This can't be. If it can't be, then the word of God is not fair. And somebody's playing games with us because this cannot be. But if it can be, then it's for us to do it. It's for us to make up our minds that whatever is keeping that from happening, usually thoughts in your mind, you've got to change. God has a way to change, and yet that's what you've got to do. You've got to change. People have forsaken the Holy Spirit. And almost every Christian's congregation in America will confess they have the Holy Spirit. They don't speak in tongues. I'll say it for you. They don't speak in tongues. There's no evidence of them having received the Holy Spirit, but they act like they have. They go about as they have, and they reject anything that requires any more than that. They reject it. Listen to me. They turn aside from a simple thing as the baptism into the Holy Spirit that Jesus said, I will send to you after he breathed on them. And he went up to the Father and said, Remain ye in this city until I send the promise of my Father upon you, which saith he you heard from the beginning, and then so forth. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with fire. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, you begin stirring up. Your life begins to change. Without the Holy Spirit, what are you going to do? Jesus said in John 16, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear it. How be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come? When he comes, when he comes, you'll be able to. So without the Holy Spirit, you can know a lot about religion. You can imitate a lot of things. You can play like, but you can't have that deep relationship, which only the Holy Spirit can show you deeper things to come.
Jesus said it's the Spirit of God who shows us things to come. He brings us into that quiet, secret place with the Lord where deeper convictions are formed. The Holy Spirit does. It's not all about tongues. It includes tongues. But it's about other things. Well, the church doesn't want that. They rejected that, and they talked people out of it. The church has become very political because that's very popular. Voting drives. Our church is voting this year. Who are we voting for? Well, uh, we can't say it because we're registered with the government as a tax-exempt corporation. We pleaded with the government to give us some kind of a governmental system so that we can have an exemption for money that we give. And therefore, we can't say anything about political people because the government still has a rule over us. Hogwash. Hogwash for all such organizations. But the church is so organized today that that's a part of their plan. Church runs to banks today. Would you loan us some money? Look, this is what we can do. Would you see fit to give us some money so we can build God a building? God doesn't need a bank. We do that because we think that's the only way it can get done. What does the Bible say? Well, I don't know, but this is the way we do it. And we can get breaks with the government. We can get breaks with this. Let me see what he said. Let me read this again. Y'all bear with me now at the middle of the 15th verse. And became vain and went after the um, har, har the, hold the, havens, heavens. What was that word? Heathens. What's a heathen? A heathen is a non-believer, an unregenerate. Mountain folks call them heathens. And become vain and went after the world, its systems and its ways and its results that were round about them whom God said, you better stay away from all that stuff. But they followed it. They followed it because that's what they wanted. And when the ways of man replace the ways of God, when we begin to conduct the affairs of our church the same way, that the business systems of the world conduct their businesses. We have invited the world into our church. It becomes a hindrance. It is an obstacle to growth. And God is not free and will not be free to work in that church to glorify that system. He won't do it. He won't do it. But we're so afraid as decent people we're so afraid of what people will say about us if we do it God's way. We're so afraid we're going to do without because we're Americans. We don't do without anything. We're Laodiceans. We don't do without anything. We don't need to turn to God for anything because we can go to the world and get it. I can get my car for, what, $120 a month now, $129 at the Kia store or get two for one. I don't have to believe God for anything. I don't even have to prove him that the windows of heaven can be opened. i got other sources. Who taught us that? Well, the church that should preach you trust God are the very ones that turn to the world. And then the people get mad and upset with you for saying that. I can say this. I haven't encouraged anybody in this room since I've been here for 80 years. I haven't encouraged anybody to go in debt. I've had to fight a few things about us. You know, we could have been in some better building this morning. We could have. We could have had enough money to pay for it. It's just not the way the Bible says to do it. 
Now, I know what people say, and I know what people think, and all of that, but that's just not the way that God said to do it. I would hate to see us come to the place that after all these years we've been here, we become unprofitable servants, and we miss it. Occasionally, I think like that, sitting around by myself, driving down the road. What if, what if? What if the Lord came? What if Jesus came and you weren't in his choices? You didn't make it. And you realize, after a while, everybody will realize it, that Jesus came and you didn't go. The door was shut and you were out. You ever think like that? It propels me to, to dig in there a little deeper. Because I'm only a spouse to Christ. The wedding hadn't taken place yet. We're engaged. We're promised. We are committed to that day coming. And we are in the process now as a church of preparing ourselves for his coming and being a pure and chaste and holy bride. Cleansed from everything that would defile me and make him not what he wanted. And, and so we are preparing ourselves. It's not a given right now. It's a time where you prove yourself. It is. I said, well, that sounds like salvation by works. I believe in salvation by faith. My new birth could not happen any other way than the way it happened. Jesus did it. I do not believe I'm saved by works. I do not believe I'm saved apart from them either because I believe there must be a demonstration of your true commitment and your true intentions that you really do make your calling and election sure that you do hold on to the plow, and that you really don't look back. I believe it's all required of us. And we don't have a license at any time in our lifetime to take any of this for granted, ever. Our business in this building, what we're doing right now is the most important thing in my life, and I hope it's yours. It is praying that God will speak to me, and the words that only can come from God prepare me for the days ahead so that I will be acceptable in his sight. Pray always that you may be accounted worthy, he said, to escape the trashest in the world, and God's word is the way you're warned, and you're prepared. Thirdly, turn to Psalm 62. Psalm 62 and verse 10. Now, in Psalm 62, it's a little difficult because he speaks of robbery and oppression. And nobody here is being accused of robbery and oppression, but there's a message in here. Psalm 62 and verse 10, trust not in oppression and become not vain in robbery. That does not mean that you should be a little more humble in your robbing people. That's not what he's talking about at all. He says, trust not oppression, become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. This is what he said in Psalm 62 and verse 10. By oppression, we're talking about a manner of life that some people have that exemplifies how they make a living. They oppress. Fraud, unjust methods of gain. We just heard of a man put in jail for a long time for what is called a Ponzi scheme of you. Send me your money, I can give you 15% a year back on it and 
lot of people sending a lot of money. He's scraping some off the top and taking some in, increases and give it to the first ones and then hope more comes in and give it next and keep everybody happy, keep this thing going while he scrapes it off the top, like a billion and a half dollars off the top. That's a fraud. That's something that a man has done to gain things in this life. He has taken advantage of other people. Now, that's what he's talking about, about oppression. Never a time in your life that you can ever take advantage of anybody and bear fruit to God. Impossible. In fact, it's just the opposite. When you use people for money, when you're the preacher and you're living a false life in front of people so that they will love you and like you and you have a good reputation, which means you can advance to a better, bigger church down the road later on, if you do that, you're not only using oppression, but you're a fraud. Now, when things like that are happening, you can't just say you're a fraud because you can't prove that. God sees the heart. I can't. But it happens so much that we know it happens that you say it that it happens, that people begin to use oppression, and they do take advantage of other people. But this is what makes you vain in the eyes of God. As he said in verse 10, trust not in oppression and become not vain in robbery. Robbery, of course, is having a heart that is set on riches. Any way you can get it, you get it. If you're a salesman and you have to mislead people, or if you're in investments and you mislead people, and you've got a good presentation and it's all a farce, people don't know it, but they convince because you're a very persuasive person. You're robbing. You're using oppression and robbery. This is a vain life in the eyes of God. One thing that God never encourages us to do as Christians is to set our eyes upon riches. Now, there's a lot of riches out there, at least it sounds like there is. And it's very enticing, and it's very persuasive because money promises you that you can go places and do things and have things, and you can be the kind of person you always dreamed of being. So whatever you got to do in life to have that, it's okay to do it because this is what life is all about. Or as they say in the world, go for it. Go for it. Aim for the stars. At least you'll hit the moon. The idea of getting a college education gives me the better job, and it probably maybe could. And then maybe I can marry that really neat guy who will make a lot of money, and I'll have a white horse to ride off in the sunset every afternoon. I have the nice house that I see in the paper with all the fancy decorations. Nothing vain about it. But I can have all of that, and I can be uh, important, and people will look up to me, and then I'll always be thin and lovely and whatever is important today to women. And so you'll pursue that. Everything's about that, the glamour magazine, the man magazines. Or you can be a muscle man. There's nothing vain about walking around in a, when it's 30 degrees out and your shirt sleeves off. That's not vain. That's just bad. Notice me. I need attention so bad. I'm high maintenance. I am high maintenance, and I need a lot of attention. Let me say this. Turn to Ecclesiastes. You're not far from it. A couple of books to write. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Life is not about money, is it? <laughs> it's really not. It's really not. 
He said in Ecclesiastes 5, he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. Is that right? Well, that's what he said. You always want more. No, he that loveth abundance will never be satisfied with increase. And this is what? Vanity. Is it vanity then to always pursue more than what you've got excessively? There's nothing wrong with trying to get ahead. Some of you guys that know that there's a difficult financial time now is not as like it was, and you're taking advantage of every opportunity that you have. I'm not talking about that. You should do that. Nothing wrong with godly ambition to improve yourself, to improve your living abilities or your surroundings and so forth. But when your whole life is about getting and having and making more and acting in the ways you have to act to get it or doing the kind of things you got to do to get it or lying here to get it or cheating there to get it, you're a vain person. You're useless and you're worthless to God. I don't care how much you give to church. I don't care how much money you put in the coffers. How much you don't, I don't care. Your motive for getting it takes away from you all the benefits that you thought, well, maybe if I can just give enough money, I'll go to heaven. You can't buy heaven. I'm, we're all glad you gave. Church is glad you gave. The people that got the money are glad you gave. Everybody's glad they gave because you've helped them make their life a little easier. But that's not the way you get in heaven. Because you're headed for heaven, you will do things like that, but that won't get you there. If you love silver and you love abundance, and that's your life pursuit, and that's what you're committed to. You're a vain person. Go back one book to the left of Proverbs 13, 11. In case you're shrewd and clever and you're taking advantage of anybody or you're mischarging, overcharging, or lying about or deceitful about what you're doing, Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 11, he says that wealth gotten by vanity by whatever vain way you can describe it here, wealth gotten by vanity shall be diminished. That is, bring to nothing. How many times have you heard a guy say, I made a million dollars three times, and I've lost it. I made it, and I lost it, and I made it, and I lost it, because there's this worldly ambition to be rich, just a desire to be rich. I grew up with a guy, one of my classmates, graduated in the bottom of the class, I think. He's a very wealthy, rich man today. He's worth several millions of dollars, a home in Mexico, a home in Florida, and money coming in all the time. He's an imbecile, <laughs> and he's a heathen, but he is wealthy. He has a lot of money. Let me tell you something. A lot of people might see all the freedoms he has, the nice Mercedes or the whatever kind of car they drive, Lexus or BMW, whatever it is, Cadillac, and have two or three of them and go places and do things and own this and go around the world and lay on the beaches and life is a piece of cake until... Until that strange pain, that moment when it's over, this guy never, in all the years I knew him, I never saw him or ever heard of him ever going to church. He told me one time after I got saved, he said, I believe when you die, the bugs get you. Well, they will. You can be sure they will. 
They get through that big concrete vault. They'll get inside that casket, and they'll get you. If they ever dig you up, there won't be nothing there but bones. But he said, that's all there is to life. And one day as he gets older, he's already my age, but when he gets a little older and things aren't so free as they used to be, and things aren't as exciting as they used to be, and you can't do quite do all those things you used to do, and the pain comes, then trouble comes, then anguish comes, and then the difficulty never knew God, never called upon God, too embarrassed to call upon him now, and then you die. And you die, and the most awful thing I could imagine to be faces you for the rest of eternity. You had it in this life, which is like a vapor of smoke. Then it's gone. And now forever, whether in fire or in outer darkness, you're done. All because you were vain. Your value in life was upon having things, being looked up to, making it in life, being something, making something out of yourself. Yes, that's what you got because life was all about you. You're a vain man, and now when you die, you perish. You perish. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 26. You got to like this. While this has to do with rich people and what they do, it also has something to do with you. It also has something to do with you. Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 26. For God giveth to a man who is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. Now, there's no market for that. You can't sell that. You could even take it to the peddler's mall and get rid of it because they're not things that you can sell. Wisdom Knowledge and joy, but they are treasured and valued highly by God as the characteristics of your life that is growing. Because wisdom, knowledge, and joy are all spiritual. They're the fruit that is born in a receptacle that's received his seed. This is what the word has done. You have become wise. You have become knowing. And you have become joyful. So this is what God gives. But to the sinner, he giveth travail to gather and to heap up, that he may give it to one who is good before God. I like that. For the sinner, it is vanity and vexation of spirit. But for us, it's 1 Timothy 6, 17, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Just remember this, that the world's pursuit of riches, fame, and fortune is vanity. Yes, it works. Yes, it works. Yes, people find it. But their lives are vain, and in the end, they're gone. And that brings me to the last point I want to make, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and we'll close with this, and verse 10, because how tragic this is. He says, I saw the wicked. I watched them. He said, I watched the wicked buried. Their big funerals and all the people around them that came to weep over them and so forth. So I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of the holy. 
Well, my question is, why were they still wicked? How could you come to the place where holiness is and then go from the place where holiness is and not be affected by it? Is that possible? Read it in your own Bible. I saw the wicked buried who had come to the holy place and well as they left the holy place. Well, why didn't the holy place ever change them? What good was it? Maybe it was for a show. Maybe it was to impress your parents that you're a good boy or a good girl, or maybe uh, your friends you brought to church, or maybe your resume includes the membership of such and such a church when you look for a job. Maybe we just want to be included in the identification of being socially good people. Our nature doesn't change because we go to church, does it? I've been around a lot of barns. I never did turn into a, a mule or a cow. I've been in a lot of chicken houses. I didn't turn into a chicken. Going to a chicken house doesn't make you a chicken. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. But you can go because maybe you were trained from a child to go to church. Go to church. I'm glad you're here. Don't get me wrong. But being here doesn't make you what you're supposed to be. You are told what you ought to be, but it's a personal choice that you have to make. He said, I saw the wicked come. I saw the wicked go. And they were forgotten in the city where they had done all of this. And what does he say about the kind of a life? This is vanity. This is vanity also. Let me close by saying this. God didn't call us out of darkness to be vain people. He didn't call us out of darkness to be outlandish, outspoken, notable people. He simply called us to be his servants. I don't need to be noticed. Many years ago, a man invited me at a big convention that I was asked to speak at a long time, back in the mid-70s. And he was offering me a chance to minister with a very well-known big shot in America. He said, I can get you on the program with me. And he said, this will really advance your ministry. And you'll really take off then. And translated, that means you'll be popular and you'll get a lot more invitations and you'll get a lot of money because that's a big money crowd. And it was. I'm talking about million-dollar offerings. I've never had one. <laughs> million-dollar offerings. I remember one time they had a trailer, a trailer load of tapes they brought to a convention and sold them. A trailer load. Money. And this becomes the kind of pursuit that a man has. And his life becomes vain because that's what he lives for. No wonder Jesus said, I never knew you. You got what you wanted out of life. You had your cars and your clothes and your houses and your notoriety. And you were able to do what you wanted to do. But you didn't do it because I wanted you to do it. Vanity. God deliver us from being vain people. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to minister to us this morning our deepest needs, our most urgent needs. For those that are here this morning that have that uneasy feeling that not all is right between them and God, that not all is right in the way you're walking or you think you're walking with the Lord, that something inside of you disturbs you. You're not doing well and you know it, but you're not doing anything about it either. And yet this morning, as God has warned us against being what he doesn't want and what prevents fruit from being born in our lives, 
he's offering us a chance to see that, to turn away from all that vanity and dismal living you're going through and turn to him. And you can do that. You don't need to come up here to do it. You can do it right where you're sitting. God sees your hearts. This morning, you may be thinking, I need to deal with my life. I'm not ready to go. And if Jesus came today, I, I think I'd be in trouble. I'm just not zealous for the Lord. Maybe today you need to deal with something in your life. Remember, God brought us here to talk to us, to tell us what he wants us to know for one reason, because he loves us and does not want to judge us. But if we turn away from him, he has to judge us because he's God. He's fair and he's right. So I pray in the name of Jesus that we will all have an honest and good heart this morning, that we will receive your word as good seed and that it will bear fruit and you will be glorified by our lives as we live as disciples. I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Amen.